Good morning. I like to sit because I can't do two things at once. Believe it or not, standing qualifies as doing something <laughs> when you're as simple as I am. I have had a cough and kind of a throat thing, so please forgive my occasional drinking and that sounded funny. Uh, my occasional drinking from the water. But I have some thoughts today that I would love to share. Wasn't that music nice? I have to confess I have sort of a crush on the piano player. Um, fortunately for me, she married me a long time ago. Um, anyone ever read the book of Isaiah? It's probably my favorite book in the Bible. Because I love mystery and it's so full of mystery. It speaks in first person and I never know like, who's talking here? Who is this? And it's like deeply prophetic. Isaiah says things that you couldn't possibly know about. Things that had, didn't even come into the world for hundreds of years after that. And he describes them. The guy's amazing. There's this part of Isaiah that says, uh, it's chapter 61. It's pretty famous. Where it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And it goes on with some more kind of over-the-top beautiful poetry that's prophetic and it's filled with promises of, of goodness, of a really deep, lasting kind of goodness that's coming to God's people. And as we all know, that was a long time ago, and a lot of goodness has happened since then, and a lot of badness has happened since then, but those promises remain. So fast forward in history, quite a while, to the time of Jesus, which is still a long time ago, but from Isaiah's day, it was the future, right? And in the Gospel of Luke, what does gospel mean? Good news. What makes good news good news? Contrast, right? Does that make sense? If everything is going spectacularly and you're in the best day of your life, and everybody you know is in the best day of their life, and there's like no problems at all, and you get some good news, I'll bet it's not as good. 
no matter what it is, as when you're in kind of the worst day of your life and you get good news. Contrast. So in the good news, Gospel of Luke, Luke's version of basically the story of Jesus, talks about Christmas, talks about the baby being born, and all of a sudden he's grown. So we miss a lot of story, or Luke missed a lot of story. And in chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, it was thought, of Joseph, who was the son of Heli, who was the son of Mathat, and I won't continue, it goes on for a long time, with son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. But at the end, it does something spectacular. Way down through all these sons of so-and-sos, it says, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. How about that? God is Jesus' great, 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 great grandpa, apparently, according to this page. Uh, I just think that's fun, and I think it's amazing that in a human genealogy, he just finishes it off with the Son of God, like we're all his offspring. Oh, and then he doesn't comment on it at all, like, okay, that's something to think about. So he starts his ministry, Jesus, and then he goes out, and there's a strange I think it's strange, verse in beginning chapter 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit to the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. I just think that's weird. If the Spirit led me to go be tempted by the devil, I would ask a lot of second opinions. Uh, my point being, this is early. A lot of the stories of Jesus are after this. This is Luke's just kind of opening up and beginning the story of Jesus. And he had this desert experience with the devil. And he did really well. And his father was very pleased. And the devil was very frustrated. I'm okay with that. It says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an appointed time. Excuse me not appointed, until an opportune time. And then I want to pick up today. So Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now, 2,000 years later, in church, the idea of praising Jesus has become kind of a a normalized religious expression, if you will. So this is before any of that. This is just a guy that no one quite realizes who he is, and they're all praising him. So if you just picture some dude, and everyone's praising him, something about him is being manifested that is causing that. Things he says. All it says is he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So he was doing well. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. So this is his hometown. This is where everyone knew him when he was a kid. Okay? The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And it's the place I just read from. 
from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads that part from Isaiah. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So, right here, right now, as we're sitting here in this synagogue, this ancient scripture of Isaiah, filled with promise, is fulfilled right here in the room. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? So they started to experience that, like, this guy's amazing, but he's just one of, one of the kids who grew up here in our town, right? Now then something very strange happens. Everyone is speaking well of him, praising him. As long as he is in this, and this is really difficult, this is really difficult. I find it really difficult. This lofty spiritual stuff that we talk about, we kind of have a category that we open up when we're in church, like they did in their synagogue. And we allow for it, and we talk about it, and it's a little bit normalized. And it's different than a random Tuesday afternoon in traffic or at work. I don't know why, it's just when we say something about this lofty, celestial, spiritual life that we're entering into here, there's a sense of, yeah, cool, wonderful, love it. But if someone talks that way out of context, something is a little more difficult. I'm just gonna throw that out there when I come back to it. Because this changes tone completely. It's kind of, you almost wonder if there's, like if we lost a page. The story changes so dramatically. So they're all praising him and speaking well of him. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what, you have, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum, where he did some miracles. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many, Israel, many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Obviously there's a lot of story there that they understood. Now, get this, same people. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff from everyone applauding to spontaneous murder attempt. What would do that? 
And then there's this passage that's, I, I don't know whether it's miraculous or whether it's, whether he's sneaky. It's just, in order to throw him down the cliff, it says, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Thank you, Luke, for that understatement. Uh, and he did, he went on his way. Went to Capernaum, went in, and we start getting all these stories from Luke about the life of Jesus. So here's the trick. Jesus, when he said this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, I'm thinking, maybe you see something different, I'm thinking he's putting himself in a position of being the one when he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I'm thinking he's taking up that first person and he is the bearer of this good news to the poor because he has anointed me, Jesus, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. No downside. Everything about that is awesome. Who wouldn't want the oppressed freed and prisoners freed? And this isn't talking about criminals per se, but other sorts of prisoners, captives. And who wouldn't want the poor to receive good news? So what makes good news good news? Contrast. In a climate where everyone's praising Jesus and having a good time, oddly, his message isn't heard. Not deeply. And he had to show them something to show them the contrast that was in fact already there. And I'm going to suggest, you, you put this in your little mental cooker and rattle it around a little bit. See what you think. I'm going to suggest that they themselves were the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed but that's not how they wanted to be perceived. They wanted to be perceived as having it together, which if you're like most of us is very familiar, wanting to be perceived as having it together. It's a little too easy, I think, when we think of those who are poor and those who are imprisoned and those who are blind and those who are, uh, and this is talking about a spiritual blindness. It's not just our eyeballs. It's talking about a deep kind of blindness. Uh, or oppressed, it's a little too easy to not put yourself and your own family in that category because there's always someone out there who has it way worse. True enough. But I would say, here, here I'll give you the whole message in uh, one minute, but like a lot of one minute messages, it needs explaining and fleshed out a bit. Basically, it's if we come to Jesus as poor, if we ask ourselves, in what ways am I poor? In what ways am I imprisoned and oppressed and blind? And we honestly answer those questions. And we look inside of ourselves. And we seek counsel from those who love us and know us. In what ways am I blind? You'll find stuff. And you come to Jesus with, come to God as that, as the broken Hearted, that needs binding up, as Isaiah put it. It's then that you really have the contrast, that you really get the good news. It's easy to say, but it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a funny thing. 
I have a friend, a woman who, uh, she's, she's a close friend and she's a wonderful woman. Known her for many years. She went through medical school, come from a very successful family. Dad was a doctor, very successful doctor. Starting in high school, she felt a great deal of family pressure to become a doctor. And in some of our, varies from culture to culture and family to family, but family pressure is a real thing, as many of us know. So she went to, she did her college with pre-med in mind, and she went to medical school, and she did extremely well, and she became very successful, and she signed on to a three-year residency in San Francisco, and did general surgery, and became a podiatrist, and her family praised her and applauded her throughout. And she made some money, and she was loved by all. That's, that's real. I'm the real person, real face in my mind. And she said that inside her soul, she felt like she was in prison. She had never experienced a personal calling to medicine at all. All of that work was, according to her, built upon family pressure. And one day she decided, I would rather have freedom than this kind of success. And she gave it up. She walked away, she let her license expire. She ended up uh, marrying a close friend of mine who didn't have a lot to offer but a man of profound spiritual life and prayer. He probably prayed more hours a day than anyone I've ever met. And she fell in love with him. She's like, this is the kind of life I want. And fast forward many years, I was talking to her, and her and her husband, six kids later, uh, with the kids, okay, all of them still in the house, they had taken in about $600 over a period of three months, gross income. And they were really poor. And she said, I have never been happier in my life. And look at my kids, six boys, very outdoor, like just fast forward some more, the oldest son is one of the firefighters in California this year, out there getting trained and fighting the blazes. And it's an amazing family. But they're kind of among the poor now, and yet not. She, I, I said, would, do you ever experience even five minutes where you would rather go back to the successful medical career? And she laughed. I mean, heartfelt laughter. She's like, not for a second. So I just throw that out there, it's a little mysterious. I identify with feeling imprisoned by debt. I don't know if that's familiar to anybody. Not right now, but there was a time in my life where I felt so deeply in debt that I couldn't find an exit. It was choking me. I felt like I owed money to everybody I knew, and I felt so stupid and so, so much like a loser. And suicide became it, it became a, an option on the table, realistically. 
uh, that's how severe it, it felt. When I come to Christ with that, it's sharp contrast. The good news feels really good. I have a friend, grew up in Kuwait. I don't know that country very well, but according to him, he says there's a lot of rich people in Kuwait. He talked like everybody he knew was extremely wealthy. And his family was just extreme uh, wealth from oil. And uh, he's another one who gave it all up. His favorite thing now is to, like, there's a few cities in North Africa where he goes and he specifically makes a beeline to the city dump where people live in ex the most extreme poverty you can imagine. All of them sick. And he just gets filled with joy. It's his favorite thing to go out there and he'll spend six, seven, eight, nine weeks just living in squalor with them because of his experience of the good news. Because seeing, even though he comes from all this health and wealth, he gets to witness the transformation of people as they take on spiritual riches. So in what ways might you be poor? Ask yourself that question. Human beings grow uh, very unevenly. Right now there are, in any of us, there are parts of you that are wise beyond your years and that are like extra talented or amazing parts of yourself. But there are other parts of you where you're kind of a two-year-old. We grow very unevenly. In the same way, there are parts of our being where we really do have it together. And there are other parts where we're incompetent. And that could be viewed as a kind of poverty if it's something that needs to develop. In what ways are you poor? In what ways have you felt imprisoned? How might you be blind? And in what ways might you feel oppressed? Gonna take just a moment in silence. Please take those questions and just silently in your heart, lay those questions out before Christ. Might we still be a little poor in our faith or in our trust of God? I have a friend who said something spontaneously once and it became one of my favorite quotes. She said, the level of stress or panic I feel in times of need are equal to the level of trusting myself, to the level I was trusting myself in times of plenty. She was talking about wanting to grow and become richer in trust. So all the way back to Isaiah, words that still ring with strength and beauty, words that somehow even back in ancient days, before the, way before the birth of Christ, words that became deeply and appropriately associated with Jesus himself. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, year of favor, day of vengeance.
to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now the good news, ultimately, is the actual presence of Jesus himself, which is why it can transcend earthly circumstances, which is why somebody who lives in physical poverty can be spiritually rich. Somebody who lives in spiritual riches can be spiritually impoverished. The good news is the one speaking the news. Connecting to him and connecting with people who are connected to him, which is how he's arranged it. That's part of it, how it works, which is why we're here. Hooks you into the good news. It's more than just news. It's more than just information. It's the source of life hooking up to you, giving you, giving you yourself, giving you your true life. If you've ever had the feeling that I get up every day and I do these things and I'm alive and I exist, but there's this other life that maybe should have been mine elusively out there that I want to get to instead. I've heard people express things like that. Maybe that's not familiar. To some of you, I think it is. That's the good news. It's the bringing of your true self to yourself. It's the bringing of the presence of God into your inner being. Probably the most powerful symbol of that I know of is right here, where Jesus, after all of these stories that, that we looked at the beginning of, brought, sat down at a table with his, with his friends, and he did what we've been doing ever since. An ancient, simple little ritual where he took the loaf and he broke it. It's still one loaf. It's just in two pieces. He broke it again. It's still one loaf. It's in three pieces. It's one loaf. It's in many pieces. The body of Christ, who was one individual, is now many. Breaking the one loaf, that's still one loaf, it's still one Christ, in many pieces that we take into our, into our soul and ingest it, and he becomes one with us. So this is beautiful. And a symbol of taking on that news within us that is our, our, our true selves and the presence of God, our real life, if you will. So we're going to go to communion. I'm going to just say a brief prayer first. God, thank you for these moments. Thank you for sustaining the scriptures for us all these years and centuries that we can learn so much from. Thank you for the way that you make us spiritually rich and full. And in the ways we are not yet, give us the courage to just simply say so and to seek it out and to come to you with, with need. 
and just be straight about it and follow however it is that you choose to fill us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.